Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome everybody to episode 32 of Push Dose EMS, your monthly educational offering brought to you by the Milwaukee County Office of Emergency Management. I'm your host, Jeff Matcha, Education Manager for the county. Uh, joining me today is the usual cast of characters, so going down my list for introductions quick. Uh, Assistant Medical Director, Dr. Tom Engel. Welcome, Dr. Engel. Hey, thanks for having me, Jeff. Happy to be here again. EMS Division Director, Dan Potra. Welcome, Dan. Hey, Jeff. EMS Fellow, Dr. Aaron McGlynn. Dr. McGlynn, welcome. Hi, Jeff. And joining us as a special guest this month, Dr. Davalola Ido. Dr. Ido, welcome. Hi, Jeff. Happy to be here. I would greatly appreciate you taking your time to join us today. As per usual with the podcast, I will turn it over to Dan briefly for any system updates. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. And then continuing with our theme of opioid use disorder, um, just wanted to let the system know that uh, OEM at the county has uh, applied for some supplemental funding that is coming to us from uh, some lawsuit settlements related to opioid use in the country. Uh, and I'm pleased to announce that OEM has been awarded $2 million over the next three years uh, to provide some resources for not only the EMS system, but the community. Um, so we'll be looking at supplying harm reduction kits to all EMS units in the county. Uh, we'll be bringing on an additional educator role uh, for the EMS system and also the general public. Uh, we'll be bolstering our data analytics team with an analyst and a GIS specialist to help us better understand the impact of not only opioid use in our community, but also uh, our response to that use of, uh, of the data. And then uh, lastly, we'll also be uh, supporting fire departments in their efforts to stand up a buprenorphine program. Excellent. Thank you, Dan. Lots of exciting stuff coming up um, the next couple of months here in the county. And before we get started into topic areas uh, for today's podcast, a uh, message from Medical Direction, Dr. Weston. All right. Thanks, Jeff. Hello, everybody. Uh, just to level set here, this is a major topic. And the reason it's such a major topic is because in Milwaukee County, someone dies of an opioid overdose every 16 hours, uh, a really staggering number. And while we as a county and as an EMS system can and are working upstream to prevent these overdoses before they occur, it's critical to also focus on harm reduction. So that's preventing the harmful effects from drug use. Now, a critical part of that harm reduction is medication-assisted treatment, particularly with buprenorphine. Now, previously, this was only available to specialized practitioners and then eventually to clinicians and emergency departments. But in Milwaukee County, we're taking the progressive step of offering buprenorphine to our patients in the field. So today's podcast will focus on key issues around medication-assisted treatment, and I'm looking forward to listening in. Thanks, Jeff, and back to you. And thank you, Dr. Weston. Some nice words on an important topic. So without further ado, uh, I will turn it over to our illustrious doctors to continue our talk on opiates and all things overdose. Great. Thanks, Jeff. So over the last few months, we've been discussing opioid use disorder and treatment. In January, we reviewed overdose and potential mimics of opioid overdose, such as stroke, sepsis, and some other ingestions. Last month, we heard from our guest speaker, Dr. Julie Owen, about opioid use disorder pathophysiology and how best to interact with patients suffering from this condition. This month, we'll be discussing the medications used to treat OUD. We also have a guest speaker from the toxicology division to help us learn more about this topic. We'll review the common medications used to treat OUD with a goal of focusing on buprenorphine. 
buprenorphine has been added to the Wisconsin scope of practice. And while we are still working on rolling this out in Milwaukee County, we like to make everyone aware of this important treatment option. As we discussed last month, the symptoms of opioid withdrawal are a result of the body's receptors that are starving for more opioids. These receptors eventually will reset after a period of prolonged abstinence, like quitting cold turkey from opioids, but the resulting withdrawal is quite unbearable and these cravings are still present, which makes it really difficult for patients to not use any of the medications they had been using. This is where the concept of medication for opioid use disorder, or MOUD, stems from. This involves medications like methadone, naltrexone, and buprenorphine. These are medications that feed those starving receptors without the resulting euphoria or high and the dangerous respiratory depression. Patients are maintained on one of these medications for a period of time to help free them from the vicious cycle of continued opioid use. The goal is to eventually stop taking any opioid medication, but this process takes time and many people are on MOUD treatment for years. The fact is, while these medications help reduce cravings for prescription or street opioids, those cravings still persist and patients frequently relapse. Like any addiction recovery, relapse is frequently part of the process and should not be looked at as a failure, but rather as a step on the road to recovery. So we'll talk a little bit about these medications used for MOUD. Keep in mind that our patients are frequently just on one of these, but it depends on what clinic or program that they're part of, and it depends on their overall preference. To help us learn more about these medications, we have our colleague, Dr. Damalola Adowu, joining us from the toxicology department. Dr. Adowu is an emergency medicine physician who trained in NYU in New York before joining us at MCW for toxicology fellowship. Dr. Adowu, thanks so much for joining us today. We're so happy to have your expertise here. Can you help us learn a little bit more about some of the medications used for MOUD? We thought maybe we'd start with methadone. Uh, thank you so much for that introduction, Erin. Uh, very happy to be here. So with methadone, uh, you're probably familiar with this one. Um, it's been around for a while, since the 1960s, um, and it's a common go-to for those in an MOUD program. Um, it has pharmacologic properties that make it a really good replacement, a legal replacement uh, for opioid for patients who, with opioid use disorder. Um, it is well absorbed in the gut, um, and it is long-acting. Uh, so this allows patients with opioid dependence to break out of that vicious cycle of spending their day procuring and administering opioids. A single daily dose would keep patients out of withdrawal and theoretically allow them to go on and participate in normal work and social activities for the rest of their day. Methadone does fully initiate all the downstream effects associated with binding to that opioid receptor. Um, so it has that risk of respiratory and mental status depression. Uh, and this is one of the major limitations with methadone. Some patients will continue to use illicit opioids while on methadone, and their risk of respiratory depression and death is compounded. The time it takes to eliminate methadone from the body, uh, which we think of as half-life, um, varies significantly, but it can be as prolonged as 50 hours. So that means the duration of effects uh, may be prolonged as well. When it comes to withdrawal prevention, um, the duration of effect is thought of as around 24 hours, and we dose this uh, with it in mind. The other big limitation with methadone is that it has the tendency, uh, the formulation that we have in the U.S., to cause uh, what we call QT interval prolongation on the EKG. This basically puts you at risk for sudden dysrhythmias and sudden death. Um, some factors 
such as genetics, uh, medication exposures to other medicines uh, make certain people more at risk than others. But the effect is dose dependent and significantly increases with doses greater than 100 milligrams a day. As mentioned earlier, overdoses can't happen because it fully binds to that receptor. Um, and so when patients use additional opioids, their risk significantly increases. Also, because it's formulated as this nice tasting liquid, um, there's also risk uh, with overdose in small children, um, and they can go ahead and drink um, someone's medicines in the house um, when it's not stored properly. Naloxone will reverse the effects of methadone, um, but because it's so long-acting, patients will require frequent redosing and will require often um, infusions up to 24 hours, uh, and so will most commonly require transportation to the hospital. Okay, great. That's really helpful. I think um, our patient population pretty commonly does take methadone, so it's really helpful for us to hear that, especially risk for children's overdose too and and how we might treat this if we do see a methadone overdose. Um, What about naltrexone as another option? Naltrexone is interesting. It competes with opioids for binding at that receptor and so prevents um, the associated downstream effects that we expect. Um, So naltrexone is actually very similar to naloxone, but unlike naloxone, um, it is well absorbed in the gut and it has this extended duration of action and it can be up to 24 hours, but we also have these extended release IM injections, which are the ones that are used for um, alcohol dependence uh, with a prolonged duration of action of days to weeks. Now, Trexone is used in the detox and abstinence approach to management of opioid dependence. And so typically a patient will be weaned off of opioids, and the goal is to maintain abstinence through naltrexone. This method has been shown to be less effective than medication-assisted therapy. Also, naltrexone increases the sensitivity of opioid receptors, and so that puts patients at risk uh, for a heightened response and subsequently overdose if they resume opioid use after discontinuing naltrexone therapy. This has fallen out of favor in recent years, but some detox facilities have historically used naltrexone for this ultra-rapid detoxification, where naltrexone is used to precipitate withdrawal, and then they manage the withdrawal with supportive care. Several complications are associated with this practice, and it is not recommended. A common pitfall is prescribing naltrexone for alcohol use disorder in patients who are on chronic opioids like methadone and buprenorphine, and this can lead to precipitated withdrawal. Due to the long duration of action, the period of withdrawal and all the suffering associated with that can be very prolonged if it's not recognized and treated effectively. That's interesting. I have definitely heard more about naltrexone and alcohol use disorder, like the Vivitrol injection, but I didn't know much about it for OUD. So that's really helpful, especially those complications you mentioned in treating patients who have both alcohol and opioid use disorders. So last but not least, what about buprenorphine? Like we mentioned initially, this was recently added to the Wisconsin scope of practice. So we're all interested in learning more about this medication. Yeah, so buprenorphine is also very interesting. Um, it does have a pretty complex pharmacologic profile. We think of buprenorphine as this partial agonist to the opioid receptor, and this simply means that it has a strong affinity to the receptor, but there's a ceiling to the effects that we expect, such as the respiratory depression and the sedation after it binds. 
Because it is so strongly binding to the opioid receptor, it actually has the ability to displace other opioids um, and can cause withdrawal in patients who are opioid dependent who have recently used opioids. In patients who are opioid dependent who do not have opioids on board and are in withdrawal, buprenorphine will actually reverse the clinical effects of withdrawal. While buprenorphine is on board, it will completely occupy those opioid receptors and prevent other opioids from binding. What this means clinically is that if you go on to use opioids after taking buprenorphine, you get less of the euphoric effects and there's a lower risk of overdose. So this is one of its major advantages over methadone. Another advantage is that patients do not have to go in daily to a clinic for dosing. Uh, treatment is usually started 6 to 12 hours after using a shorter acting opioids, for example, heroin or oxycodone, and then at least 24 hours after using a longer acting opioids like methadone. Contraindications in our upcoming guidelines include clinical opioid withdrawal score, that cow score, less than seven, methadone use within 72 hours, and lack of decision-making capacity. The EMS guideline will also exclude pregnant patients because data on these patients is limited and safety to the fetus is not as well established. There are various routes of administration that exist, um, including tablets or films that you place under the tongue, transdermal patches, long-acting sub-Q injections and implants, and you also have IV and IM formulations. The films and tabs that you place under the tongue are most commonly used for OUD. Suboxone is an example of this, um, and it actually contains buprenorphine as well as the opioid antagonist naloxone. Naloxone does not absorb well from the gut, so it really has no effect when you use suboxone as prescribed. The idea behind that formulation is to prevent abuse by injection use, because if injected, that antagonist effect of the naloxone will kick in and prevent euphoric effects, and more importantly, prevent overdose. The sublingual formulation have their peak effect within one to four hours and last up to 24 hours. There is some risk of respiratory depression, particularly when patients take this with other medicines that cause respiratory depression, such as benzodiazepines. If a patient does have an overdose while taking buprenorphine, which is very rare, you can expect to need more naloxone than usual and for a longer period of time. So again, transport to ER is going to be very important for further care. Thank you, Dr. Doe. That was a really helpful overview. It sounds like buprenorphine is going to be a great tool for us, but definitely has some factors we need to consider when we start using it. We're going to take a quick detour here to talk about some OUD treatment programs and our upcoming buprenorphine guideline, and then we'll circle back with you for some final questions. So there are many programs you may have heard of doing excellent opioid-related outreach right in our area. This is by no means a comprehensive list, but we'd like to highlight two of these programs, the Milwaukee Overdose Response Initiative, or MORI, and West Dallas's MIH program. The Milwaukee Overdose Initiative, MORI, is a collaborative program with MFD, the City of Milwaukee Health Department, and Medical College of Wisconsin Comprehensive Injury Center. You might already be familiar with this awesome program, which uses overdose data from MFD, such as the EPCR charts identifying overdose or identifying the use of naloxone, to identify patients who might need support following an overdose. 
The team includes a community paramedic and a peer support specialist who go out to the patient's home within a day or two after an overdose and offer resources and connection to treatment if the patient desires. In its first year of operation from 2019 to 2020, Maury successfully contacted 404 patients with recent overdoses to offer support and connection to resources. Of course, the pandemic suspended some of these efforts for a time, but the Mori team is now back out in the community doing some incredible work for our patient population. Similarly, West Dallas's MIH program has an initiative to reach out to patients who had a recent overdose. Because they're operating an MIH program pretty much 24-7, they're often able to dispatch an MIH provider to an overdose call in real time to start helping these patients connect to treatment resources right away. In 2021, they were able to contact 86% of patients who suffered an overdose, and about half of those patients entered treatment as a result. Currently, neither of these programs offer buprenorphine, as it is such a recent addition to the Wisconsin scope of practice, but we're hoping to be able to start this important treatment in the field soon. Dr. Engel, can you tell us a little bit about how other EMS systems have been using pre-hospital buprenorphine? Yeah, thanks, Dr. McGlynn. I think we all know that pre-hospital buprenorphine is, is taken off. Um, in Wisconsin, it was recently approved for the 2023 scope of practice for EMTPs uh, within the state. So other agencies include Contra Crista County, California, Camden, New Jersey, and Austin Travis County, Texas, have been three of the biggest uh, agencies that have piloted the administration of buprenorphine in the field um, with overall positive results uh, with their follow-ups. So each of these programs differs slightly in the doses and the way that they induce patients on buprenorphine in the field. Um, they also defer on how they identify patients and how they treat some of their side effects. So the, the protocols are all a little bit different and guidelines a little bit different, but they all have kind of the same spirit behind them. They've all been found to be safe and effective interventions in the pre-hospital setting. And you know the, the spirit behind each of these guidelines is really identifying a patient who has signs and symptoms of opioid withdrawal based on a standard mechanism for identifying that, and then effectively inducing them on buprenorphine in the field to get those symptoms gone and then finding ways to follow up uh, with this patient immediately or within the next 24, 72 hours after the event. And really the biggest barrier for starting a buprenorphine program in, for induction in the field is ensuring that these patients really get follow-up because uh, like uh, Dr. Adou said in her presentation, buprenorphine typically lasts for about 24 hours. So you're gonna need that medication within 24 hours or the next day. So you gotta get somebody to write a prescription to get you that medication. And then also you're gonna need probably clinic follow-up so somebody can continually get you that medication. And then extremely important is making sure you get all those wraparound social services um, that patients who have opioid use disorder require. So it's really, uh, you know, it's it's not just as simple as, as inducing them in the field. That whole follow-up piece is really, really important. Awesome, that's great background. And it's really exciting to hear that some other systems are having success with this. Can you walk us through the proposed buprenorphine guideline for Milwaukee County, just to give us an idea of what the goals are? Yeah, so um, I, I appreciate you asking that. The, the guideline is intended for patients with opioid withdrawal symptoms, whether related to abstinence from opioid usage or from precipitated withdrawal after naloxone administration following an opioid overdose. Um, the guideline for Milwaukee County is gonna be limited initially to MIH providers for the time being. That's just for the time being. And we're going to be using the COWS scale, which was covered earlier this month, to identify patients who are candidates to receive buprenorphine in the field via those MIH providers. Um, if the patient does consent to buprenorphine induction, we're going to start with a dose of 16 milligrams sublingual and then reassess their COWS score at a certain period of time. 
If they require a second dose for elevated cow score, which indicates they're still having symptoms, we would administer another eight milligrams sublingually uh, with the ability to treat pain and nausea with some Tylenol and Zofran as well. Right now, our, 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 our pathway is going to focus on getting these folks to the emergency department after this induction because um, they're going to need that prescription for more buprenorphine the next day. They're going to need that follow-up in clinic for more medication in the future. Um, and they're going to need all those wraparound social services that the ERs are really primed to provide those patients. You know, at the same time, though, we're still actively working on a plan to ensure that there's access to buprenorphine and all those wraparound services for patients who do not consent to EMS transport to the hospital. Um, other uh, agencies throughout the country have done non-EMS transport successfully, um, but once again, it's, it all hinges on the ability to make sure they can get medication the next day, a prescription for a reasonable time of medications, ensure that they get adequate clinic follow-up, and then all those uh, wraparound services. So I think we do have a good plan and a good guideline in place that's going to start with our MIH providers, and who knows where this rolls out to next if we're successful. Thanks, Dr. McGlynn. Thank you, Dr. Engel. That's exciting news to hear. We're looking forward to it. So Dr. Adowu, let's just circle back with a couple questions that we anticipate coming up when this guideline does roll out. So the first is, what if the patient gets too much buprenorphine? What kind of things should we be watching for to make sure our patients are safe? So the studies that were done on high-dose buprenorphine induction showed low to no occurrences of respiratory depression, though there is a risk of that theoretically. Because of that sealing effect with buprenorphine's ability to cause respiratory depression, this risk is very low. There is also the risk of precipitated withdrawal, though you could actually treat that with higher doses of buprenorphine. Excellent. Okay. So we'll be prepared for the possibility of respiratory depression, but it sounds like it's pretty rare. What if we do put a patient into withdrawal with buprenorphine? How should we deal with that? Reassurance and supportive care. You could potentially increase the buprenorphine dose to get more of that agonist effect and overcome withdrawal. Most likely, we'll have to transfer these patients to the hospital for further management with medications like clonidine and benzodiazepines. The biggest challenge is patients' perception of buprenorphine after this happens. It may close their mind completely to it, so it's best to avoid the situation if possible. Got it. Okay. So we will have that second dose of buprenorphine included in our guideline if needed, but otherwise it sounds like we should be encouraging these patients to be transported to the hospital for further treatment. What happens if a patient who has recently used opioids or is still in intoxicated gets buprenorphine? In this case, it's best to hold buprenorphine until the patient has no opioid agonist on board and is actually showing signs of withdrawal. Okay, great. So our COWS score will come in handy to help us figure out where our patients are on that withdrawal spectrum and we'll treat them appropriately. What about any recent use of methadone? Because methadone is long acting and the risk of precipitated withdrawal persists for longer, the standard approach is to transition from methadone to buprenorphine slowly, decrease the methadone dosing, and then discontinue methadone for at least 72 hours before starting buprenorphine. So we want at least 72 hours since the last methadone dose. Got it. Okay. So to be safe, our guideline is likely going to indicate waiting up to 72 hours after methadone to start the buprenorphine. Are there any other side effects or problems we should watch out for when using buprenorphine? Besides that very, very low risk of respiratory depression, as with any other opioids, and that risk of precipitated withdrawal, 
buprenorphine is very safe and well-tolerated, and providers should really have no trepidation in starting it in the right patients. Great. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Odowu. We really appreciate your expertise on this. That is all we have for this month, so we'll be sure to keep you all posted as we finalize our plans for buprenorphine, and stay tuned for more educational content on this topic in the next few weeks. As always, thank you for your hard work, and we'll see you next month. Excellent. Thank you, everybody. Some exciting times and some great new interventions coming towards the county. So thank you, Dr. Engel and Dr. McGlynn uh, for that coverage, and a special thank you to Dr. Yudowu for taking time out of your day to grace us with your specialty and your wealth of knowledge on the topic area. I appreciate everyone joining us today to participate in the podcast, as well as everybody listening out there in podcast land. Until next month, stay safe and thanks for listening.